Welcome to Turning Point. Have you noticed how quickly a disagreement can erupt into a shouting match? Or worse, even among Christians? Is anger always a sin? Today, Dr. David Jeremiah examines the issue through the eyes of the Apostle Paul, who offered tools to help believers deal with this dangerous emotion. Here's David to introduce today's message, Slaying the Giant of Anger. And friends, thank you for joining us today. You know, uh, we live in an angry world. Have you figured that out? I mean, highway anger, uh, stuff going on in schools, anger on the Internet, anger in public places. Um, I mean, some people get killed just because they change the lane at the wrong time. And it's never been quite like this. We've always had anger because anger is a part of who we are as a nation, who we are as people. But we live in a more angry world than we ever have. And it's kind of scary. Uh, it, it really is frightening when you see it taking over uh, among Christians. Yeah, that's true. Christians get angry. How do we manage our anger? And the question that was asked in the intro was, is anger always a sin? And we're going to answer that question as we teach today. So glad you joined us. Uh, we have a book that you can get that has all the material for this current series. The book is called Slaying the Giants in Your Life, and it contains all of the all the uh, talking points, all of the messaging, all of the bullet points for these messages, and you can follow in this book and read everything that I've said. There's a study guide that goes with this that's great for small groups. You can get those for your small group um, participants, and uh, we hope you will do it. Here's how you get the book, however. We'll send you the book for a gift of any size during the month of February. That's right. Just uh, reflect on what God is doing in your life through Turning Point, through the teaching of His Word on the radio. And when you do that, send a gift and say, please send me the book, and we will. It'll be there as soon as we can get it. You know how the mail goes these days, but we're doing our very best to, to expedite every request. We want to thank you ahead of time for your gift. The book is a way we can say that in a tangible way. And then um, there's some special things you can get from Turning Point during this month that goes along with the series. We have some beautiful scripture cards, uh, which are kind of bookmark size, and they capture the very important scriptures for every one of the temptations and trials and giants that we're talking about. Those are free. Just ask for them when you get in touch with us. Right now, I'm anxious to get going with uh, the first part of Slaying the Giant of Anger. Early in the 1970s, a promising young American pianist gave a concert in the chamber music room of the Irwan Hotel in Bangkok. The recital was only a few minutes old when the artist discovered that due to the climate's excessive humidity, the D key on the treble clef began to stick repeatedly. As it turned out, his program comprised Bach's D minor toccata and fugue and his prelude in fugue in D major. The reviewer in the Bangkok Post reported that there was also a problem with the piano stool, which had been so enthusiastically greased that during one of the more vigorous sections, the pianist suddenly found himself swiveling around to face the audience. <laughs> Realizing he wasn't going to be able to play anything in D minor or D major, he moved on to Franz Liszt's Fantasia in G minor, at which point the G key of the bass clef also stuck. To try to free the notes, the virtuoso started kicking the lower section of the piano. 
And the result was that the piano's right leg soon gave way and the whole instrument began to list 35 degrees. At this point in the story, which is a true account, the musician arose, bowed before the audience, and left the stage to the audience's applause. But they had not seen the last of this man, for in a moment he returned, and in his hand there was a fire axe, with which he began to demolish the piano. On hearing the resounding crash, which followed, the ushers came rushing in, and with the help of the hotel manager, two watchmen, and a passing policeman, they finally succeeded in disarming the man and dragging him off the stage. I don't know if you've ever seen a temper tantrum, but that was a big one. That was a major temper tantrum. And, you know, we still have a lot of anger in our culture today. I saw that in classified ad section of a paper recently there was this ad, Wedding dress for sale, never worn, will trade for 38 caliber pistol. <laughs> Calvin Miller observes that anger is our towering Goliath. That most of us never conquer. And with maddening consistency, anger dodges the little pebbles that we put in our slingshot to slay it. It is one of the biggest challenges people face. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the occurrence of anger and wrath is on the uprise. Ten years ago, we wouldn't have heard about the freeway incidents that so often make our newspapers now. I remember people getting mad at me on the freeway when I did something stupid that I shouldn't have done or cut in on them, but I've never remembered them following me off the freeway when it wasn't their turn and honking their horn all the way off and creating new words in the English language, which I had never heard before in my life. But anger is a great, great challenge in this day and age, and people are living their lives in many respects as angry people. Somebody said that anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than on the person on which it is poured. And we all know that while anger may do some harm to those who are the object of the wrath, ultimately anger hurts the person who is filled with anger more than anyone else. Now in the Bible to which we have opened in the book of Ephesians and the fourth chapter, we have a very interesting statement in the 26th verse. And that statement, given the fact that anger is such a difficult emotion to deal with, is quite surprising. For here in the 26th verse, we read from the words of Paul, Be angry and sin not. And the word be angry is a command. So if anger is all that bad, why are we commanded to be angry? It says here, be angry and sin not. Later on in the passage, it says, put all anger away from you. But here it says to be angry. So there must be some way in which anger can be looked upon as a positive emotion. Is there such a thing as righteous indignation? Is there such a thing as sinless anger? Well, there must be because here we are told that there is a kind of anger that is without sin. And the only place we have to go to appeal to this is to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which we shall do in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to clear up one thing that sometimes gets attributed to this passage of Scripture. 
Whatever else this passage is saying, it is not giving us a proof text for venting our anger so that we can get rid of it. Many of the talk shows now that you listen to if you travel around and turn on your car radio, someone will call in who's saying they're filled with anger, and they'll be given advice by some would-be psychologist who says, well, you need to get that anger out. You need to vent that anger. Go to the person you're angry with and just let them have it. And so you hear about these shouting matches where people are venting their anger. Unfortunately, that is not one of the optional interpretations of this passage. Because if you study the rest of the scripture, you will discover that the Bible gives us no option for that kind of anger to be displayed in our hearts. For instance, in the book of Matthew, in the sixth chapter, Eugene Peterson paraphrases a verse like this. He says, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. Well, I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or a sister is guilty of murder. Those are the words of Jesus. Later on in the book of Galatians, we're told that fits of rage are on a list called the sins of the evil nature. In the book of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11, the issue seems to be settled once and for all. For the writer of Proverbs says, a fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. And James adds this instruction in the New Testament, so then my beloved brethren... Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And Psalm 37, 8 says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. So then what in the world does Paul mean when he says, be angry and sin not? How can we be angry without sin? And I told you the key to it was in the life of the Lord Jesus. On a number of occasions, if we read the Gospels carefully, we discover that the Lord Jesus expressed anger. On one such occasion, he expressed anger, and it was not a spirit of temper or hostility. It wasn't a momentary explosion from a volatile spirit, but it was a steadied and carefully thought through anger at something which Jesus witnessed. And that something that he witnessed happened to be in the temple. It's recorded for us in the second chapter of John's Gospel, where we're told that he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, I have to tell you, I've always secretly liked this passage of Scripture because I'm tired of people talking about Jesus like he was some sort of a wimp. The Lord Jesus was a man's man, and he walked into the temple that day by himself and got rid of everybody there, turned over the tables, drove all the animals out, and they knew he had been there. They knew Jesus had been in the temple that day. But why was he so angry? Why did he do that? There were two reasons, and let me explain them to you because they're important. What was going on in the temple proper was extortion. It was racketeering. The poor pilgrims who were coming to the temple to worship, according to the Jewish customs, were bringing their sacrificial animals with them, the best of their flocks, lambs without blemish and spot. They would get to the temple proper in order to sacrifice the lambs, and the high priest who was in on the racket would say, 
Your animals don't pass inspection. They're not fit to be sacrificed. But we just happen to have some approved animals over here that you can buy. And of course, the price was extorted. And they took money from the poor pilgrims because they were coming to worship. And when Jesus saw that abuse and injustice, he was filled with anger. The other reason he was upset about that happens to be the fact that they had set up shop in the Gentile court. The Gentile court was the outer court of the temple, and it was the only place where non-Jews were allowed to come and worship. It was carefully protected so that those who were not from the Jewish faith could come, and if they desired to, come into the outer court of the temple and worship Jehovah God. And these merchants, these wicked racketeers, had so filled up the Gentile court that there was no place for anyone to worship. And when Jesus saw that, he was filled with anger. Now, what was different about Jesus' anger and the anger that we often express in our lives? Here it is, and this is the key. Jesus' anger was never about his own stuff. His anger was always at the abuses and the wrongdoings and the lack of justice that was going on in the world which he witnessed. And you know, men and women... We need to go back to that kind of righteous anger in our own hearts, don't we? Now, we seem to have become so mellow about life that injustice can go on in our culture without any anger being expressed. There is a righteous anger, but here's the key. If you're angry because of something that's been done to you, that's not righteous anger. But if you're angry because of that which is going on that is abusing others and hurting others, then that is a kind of righteous anger that we ought to feel free to express. On another occasion, the Lord Jesus was ministering on the Sabbath day, and they brought to him somebody who had a withered hand. And Jesus, feeling compassion for that man, healed him. And everybody got upset with him because they said he had broken the Sabbath. And it says right in Mark that Jesus was angry. He was angry because they didn't understand the spirit of the law. They didn't understand the importance of compassion. Jesus got angry at the right things. And once in a while, we need to express a little bit of that anger in our own lives. It's gone out of our culture. John Stott once remarked that there's room for Christian righteous anger. Be angry with evil, not tolerant of it. Be angry with sin, not indifferent to it. It's right to be angry. Aristotle a long time ago, said it this way. A man who is angry on the right grounds against the right person in the right manner at the right moment for the right length of time deserves to be praised. And he was right. So we have to recognize that there is a kind of anger that is sinless, but don't confuse it with venting. Don't confuse it with ventilating your own anger because that's not supported in the Scripture. There's also a kind of anger that is sinful. And in the same text to which we have opened, we are given some very clear instructions. It says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath or on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity in your life. Later on in the text, it says, put away from yourself all anger and wrath and clamor and malice and evil speaking. Sinful anger is what most of us have to deal with. Most of us have to deal with the things that somehow get in our spirit and begin to make us angry. And I want to give you some help in dealing with sinful anger because all of us have to deal with it at one time or another. 
First of all, let me suggest to you that when you face the urge to be angry over something someone has done or failed to do in your interest, you need to make up your mind you're not going to nurse that anger. Here's what the Bible says. Let not the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? That means that you should never be angry about anything more than 24 hours. At the end of that period, when the sun goes down, you better get rid of it. Now, Phyllis Diller thought a little differently about this. Phyllis Diller said, never go to bed mad, stay up and fight. Now, that's what she thought it meant. <laughs> but I have to tell you that of the seven deadly sins, the sin of anger is the one which is maybe the one we enjoy the most. We like to turn our anger around in our minds and coddle it. Do you ever make up speeches in your mind? Wouldn't it be awful if all the speeches we've ever made up in our mind were suddenly printed out on the big screen? <laughs> Aren't you glad after the whole thing is passed over you didn't give your speech? Boy, I've come up with some doozies I want you to know. I'm glad they're not public. When you get angry with something and before you know it, you're beginning to enjoy your anger. You're beginning to coddle it and nurse it and, and think, you know, and there's something about being angry at another person that gives you a feeling of superiority over them. And oftentimes it's very difficult for us to let it go. When we nurse our anger, it always builds to a grudge. It eats at our soul and finally it begins to rot our soul with a spirit of cynicism. Over time a grudge makes us prisoners of poison and bitterness. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're to root out bitterness that springs up within our hearts and causes trouble and by which we can be defiled. Settle all accounts before nightfall. I remember a cartoon I saw some years ago of a couple underneath it said, let not the sun go down on your anger. And the wife is hanging off this edge of the big bed and the husband's hanging off the other edge. They got their backs turned to each other and obviously they hadn't gotten the lesson. <laughs> They'd gone to bed angry. You know, let nighttime be the reminder to us that if we have an angry spirit with anyone, let's do our best to resolve it before the night is over. Because when anger is allowed to be nursed in our spirit, when we allow it to be coddled within our soul, it never gets better, it always gets worse. Secondly, let me suggest to you that we should not rehearse our anger. Have you ever been around people that love to tell you how angry they are? I mean, you can't get in their presence before. You don't even have to ask them what's going on with you. They're going to tell you how angry they are. I remember hearing Henry Brandt years ago when I was just getting started in the ministry give a speech on anger. And he gave a speech and went something like this. He said, people are always saying, you make me so angry. And then he said, you know, nobody can make you angry. You are angry. They just bring it out of you. You can't be made to be what you are not. And when we rehearse our anger, when we allow anger to become the subject of our conversation, all we're doing is digging the grooves deeper in our minds and in our spirit, making that thing that has caused us to be angry in the first place bigger than life until it begins to dominate us to such an extent that we cannot live without that being a part of our daily conversation. Don't rehearse your anger. And thirdly, don't converse about it. It's almost the same thing, but this means don't let your mouth be the source. 
of promoting anger. Here in the text we're told that we are not to let any corrupt word proceed out of our mouth. Do you know what the word corrupt means? In the language in which the New Testament was written, the word corrupt is the word for cutting. It means don't let any cutting remark come out of your mouth. You know, we live in a culture where that's almost a favorite indoor sport, isn't it? Cutting one another. And we've all done it where somebody says something that cuts you and then you have to make a little more cutting remark against them and so you can spend a lot of time just cutting one another down. And I've said this before at Shadow Mountain, I'm becoming more convinced of it all the time that I'm not really sure there is a place for sarcasm in a Christian's vocabulary. Because cutting remarks, according to the Word of God, often are the source of long-term problems. I had a friend in my church where I was in Fort Wayne before I came here in 1981. He was a a good friend. He lived around the corner from us. And when we get together, you know, he loved to cut me and, you know, I got kind of into it. You know, I figured if he can do this, I can too. So I'd cut him back. So one day I knew something was wrong and I went and sat down with him and I said, what's going on here? And he said, do you remember when, and he pointed back to a time I'd already forgotten. We were sitting at the dinner table and he took something I said in jest And he took it seriously and lodged it in his heart. And that cutting remark caused a spirit of bitterness to grow up in his heart. I vowed before God that as much as it was humanly possible for me that day, I would not get involved in that game again. Because I found out that since I'm a pastor, people weigh my words a lot heavier than I meet them in a time of jest. The Lord Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, instructs us that we're not to let cutting words come out of our mouth. But notice what the alternative is. But what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers. We're not to use cutting remarks. We're to use remarks that build one another up and give strength and grace to them in their lives. What is it that the Proverbs says in Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. And then there's one other thought here under this point that I need to leave with you. How many of you know that when you hang out with angry people, before long you pick up some of their symptoms? In fact, the proverb says that in such a very forceful way. Listen to what this verse says. Make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your own soul. I don't like to be around angry people. You never know when they're going to go off. You don't know what's going to set them off. And it's very difficult to be with such a person without picking up some of their habits. Now you say, Pastor Jeremiah, what if I'm married to him? (laughs) I will pray for you. And you need to pray a lot, too. Well, we'll have some more of that tomorrow. I guess we kind of chuckled about it, but it's not a laughing matter because domestic violence is one of the most prominent crimes of our day. Uh, Tomorrow is part two of Slaying the Giant of Anger. And then on Friday, uh, part one of The Giant of Resentment. Next week, The Giant of Doubt. I love this one. Thursday and Friday, uh, we're going to talk about procrastination. These problems we face every day, and isn't it interesting that the Bible has something to say about every one of them? That's what we're exploring together. We're hoping to give you a little uh, biblical mindset about the problems that sooner or later touch all of us. 
Thank you for letting us have the opportunity. Don't forget, we're going to Alaska in July. I don't want to forget to tell you. I feel like I should tell you about this every day so you don't ever get a chance to forget it because it is going to be one of the all-time best ones we've ever done. Uh, For all you guys who are out there that you'd think about a cruise, perhaps, here's something to really make you think about it. Um, On this cruise, we're going to have James Brown and Tony Dungy from CBS with us. They're coming with their families. And on one of the nights of the cruise, my son Daniel, who works for the NFL Network, is going to interview James Brown and Tony Dungy. And we're going to have the opportunity to ask them questions and get to know them. I know both of them a little bit, James Brown more than Tony, but I know these are great guys who love Jesus and they're going to be a great blessing to us. I hope you'll come be with us. Find out about it at davidjeremiah.org and please be sure to be here tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Slaying the Giants in Your Life, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's book, Slaying the Giants in Your Life. And learn to banish the giants from the promised land of your life. This popular book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue slaying the giants in your life on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. Have you ever examined the blade of a very sharp knife under a microscope or magnifying glass? To the naked eye, the blade of a sharp knife looks perfectly smooth. But when magnified many times, it is shocking how many imperfections there are in the cutting edge of a blade. Yes, 
A sharp knife cuts well in spite of its imperfections, but it is still far from perfect. And the same is true with us. By outward appearances, most people seem to be pretty sharp. But on closer inspection, our imperfections are readily apparent. Thankfully, God provided a perfect Savior in whom we can stand faultless before God. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's perfect Savior on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.